Well, there's a little blue line that goes across, and then there's all wavy lines. And some poor person sitting there listening to that right now, thinking, I thought this was a class. All right. So what questions do you want to make sure are addressed? What questions might you have about what we've already studied, which would be Gospels through two-thirds of the letters of Paul? Yes, ma'am. Uh, the word pastoral, why is it applied just to those as opposed to the, the others, especially the letters to the churches? Okay. Good question. What else? Everybody's all set. You are. With all these letters, yes. They all have a helper to, you know, like now we have secretaries or computers and things like that. So did Paul have a secretary or somebody in that vein? Good question. Any others? Okay. Well, both of these are, are easily addressed at the beginning, so let's go ahead and deal with them, and then we will dive into the handout. <coughs> Excuse me. In fact, let's do the handout. What does the word pastoral mean? Shepherd. Okay. Having to do with shepherding. shepherding. Um, it comes from the word pasture. So our word pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, um, is an old English word for one who takes sheep to a pasture. Uh, also known as a pasture-er, and that gets shortened or truncated into pasture. So when you hear the word pastor, it means shepherd. That's all it means. And by the way, in the New Testament, it never referred to one person at a time. It always referred to a group of people functioning together who were also known as elders and overseers, and the old English word for overseer, um, and believe it or not, it actually is English letters come from uh, the Greek letters and then twisted just a bit, is bishop. So how many of you have heard the word bishop before? <coughs> Excuse me. So in the Bible, an elder, by the way, does anybody, this get way extra credit for this, does anybody know the Greek word for elder? Nope, that would be bishop or overseer. Epi, over, and scope, scopos. You know it, you just don't know you know it. Not diakonos? No, that would be servant. So the, di the diakonos or the deacon, the English version, were people who served in a ministry in the church under the authority of the elders. 
and particularly uh, where there was some responsibility delegated to them, uh, where the elders would say, we don't have the time to do that or expertise or whatever, so you will do that. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the Greek word is presbyteros, and it means older. So older, elder, you know. Um, and it comes into English. Uh, well, it doesn't come into English, actually. It just has English letters given to it instead of translating it. So presbyter, and of course, Presbyterian. So a Presbyterian church is a church that has a government by elders. Technically, we would be considered Presbyterian. But of course, we don't use that term because in this country, that's also the name of a denomination or a set of denominations. So nobody wants to be confused about that. But it simply meant referred to elders. And then you had um, church government where the government was carried out by an overseer. Now, that never happened in the New Testament or the first century. But it developed later. And so those were government by an episkopos. And what does that sound like? Episcopalian. So the Episcopalian church, <coughs> Episcopalian church has an archbishop or overseer over all of it. Technically, by the way, who is that? Technically. Jesus. No, no, no. All speaking human terms. Well, definitely not the Pope because they're not Roman Catholic. They would not accept oh, Rome's authority. Oh, the Episcopalians. Yeah. What were Episcopalians before they were Episcopalians in this country? Hint, before the Revolutionary War. Anglicans. Anglicans. Became very unhealthy to refer to yourself as. Anglican, which meant English, when the, the U.S., or at least the colonies, were fighting a war with the English, the British, right? So they stopped calling themselves the Anglican Church, but that's what they called themselves before. They were simply a branch of the Anglican Church or Church of England. So theoretically, the king is the head of the Church of England. Um, in practical terms, it's one of the archbishops uh, of England. Um, of course, then there's another episcopos, uh, another group of people who believe in being ruled by one, and who would that be? The Pope. The Roman Catholics, right. Uh, the word Pope is from the Latin Papa, for father. Um, so it's typically technically would only be used by those within the Roman Catholic Fellowship because no one else would accept them as that. Personally, I don't accept them as the Bishop of Rome. I accept them as the Bishop of Rome of Roman Catholics. But there are a great many people who are Christian in Rome who are not Roman Catholic. You see what I'm saying? So we, we need to understand we've got this, this terminology that's been twisted. So when we think of pastoral, what do we think of? Okay, so you, you think of Paul being over the churches, and that's why people ask that question. But the word is not referring to Paul, it's referring to the recipients 
Timothy and Titus because they were sent for two reasons, basically. One was to make sure things were in order in the churches in Ephesus and Crete, respectively. So Timothy was sent to Ephesus and Titus to Crete. But they were also sent, and you see this in the letter itself, to ensure that there are functioning elders or or no pastors because remember see we've we've bent the meaning of the words so people call me pastor randy and i get blue and go to blue in the face don't know my name's randy i've got another title if you want to use it nobody does but pastor no i am a pastor as one of the elders i am not the pastor because there is no such thing and there is no such thing anywhere else, by the way, even though people will say there is. Biblically, it's not real. And we believe very strongly in following the biblical model. Now, we don't claim to be perfect in that, but we do repent when we find out we're not. So the pastors are the shepherding function being provided by Timothy and Titus, but more than that even, they are there to pass all this down and make sure there are functioning pastors, overseers, elders. The, the three titles were of the same people. So they call them whatever they want. They did those things. They were elder, therefore mature. They oversaw the church. And they did it as a shepherd, shepherding a flock. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the, the origin of the term pastoral letters. Okay, so Cindy, can I ask a question? No, because you didn't put it up here before. I'm sorry. Well, it sort of relates to pastoral, and I don't know whether to ask it later or now, or maybe well, let's I dive in. ask it. But, let's dive in. So where does minister fit into that? Minister is an English word that is translating the Greek word diakonos, or deacon. It means servant. Okay. My formal title is senior servant, senior minister. And my job is to organize, facilitate the ministries of the church. So there's a very different perspective and approach between senior pastor and senior minister, particularly in America today. Okay, good question. All right. So the other question was, did they have a, did Paul have a secretary? And the answer is yes. Um, Paul was, uh, is believed to have uh, suffered from very poor eyesight. So at the end of one of his letters, he writes, see, I write in my own hand, see what large letters, you know. Um, and, and that says two things. One is apparently, I mean, the size of the letters probably because uh, of eyesight, because people who don't see well can't write very small. And we're talking about the 50s and 60s AD. So there's no contact lenses, there's no glasses, there's no corrections for this. If you don't see well, you don't see well. It's just the way it is. And Paul was a man who was probably at that time 50 to 60. The average mortality was in the early 40s. So people absolutely lived into the 80s and 90s, but it was extremely rare. 
And so by this time, the odds are pretty good. He was suffering from the ailments of age. And one of those would be a decrease in eyesight, even worse. Um, there's a guy named Sylvanus, and you can tell from the us, the US, that's uh, a Latinized version of his name. The Greek version would be Silas. So when you see Silas and Sylvanus in the New Testament, they're generally both the same word, but they're coming out uh, of different uh, translation traditions. Um, and Silas is thought to be not only Paul's amanuensis secretary, um, but very possibly did the same thing for Peter. Um, many comment on the fact that Peter, uh, Second Peter, is uh, different grammatically and linguistically than the first. Seems to be written by someone a bit more academically astute than, say, a fisherman from a country where they don't speak Greek. And the, the, many people will say, well, then obviously Peter didn't write that. Well, the problem with that is that we know that Peter had a close association with Silas, and we know that Silas functioned as a secretary, not necessarily the only one, by the way, but a secretary to the apostles at different times. Um, so it's very reasonable to assume that it was Silas who actually was, was given what to say by Peter and then wrote it out, and he would have written it out in appropriate grammar. Um, and Silas, by the way, was apparently fairly well educated, was Greek. So we know for sure that Paul used at least Silas and probably some others. Um, beyond that, we can speculate more, and it's just having fun with speculation. So. All right, so the section we've already talked about, it is the pastoral letters. The books include... First and Second Timothy and Titus, just those three. And with these three, we've now covered all of Paul's letters. And then next week, we will cover what are called the general letters. And the reason they're called the general letters is it's a way of saying the letters that Paul didn't write. Because Paul's letters were so dominant, there's so many of them, that when you look at the rest of them, can anybody think of general letters? We'll cover all of them, of course, next week, but just to get started. Hebrews is one. And actually a fairly significant. We'll come back to that. James. James. Jude. See, the, the letters of John. The letters of, of Peter. So these are all the general letters. Now, in the, the New Testament, the way we have it organized, and you do remember that this was not given to us by revelation, the organization of that's something that evolved over hundreds of years. And it's been pretty much the same organization for the last 15, 1600 years. So now it's just the force of tradition continuing that. But in this, you've got Paul's letters. And then you have the general's le general letters. The buffer between them is what we call the Book of Hebrews, which was actually a letter written to Jewish Christians or Hebrew Christians. And the reason it was placed in between is because some people believe Paul wrote it. So if Paul wrote it, by placing it at the end, they've still got Paul's letters altogether. But if Paul didn't write it, 
by placing it between, then it's actually the beginning of the general letters. And they've got the general letters all together. And that actually was a discussion that led to Hebrews being placed where it is in the uh, arrangement of the New Testament books. I do not believe Hebrews was written by Paul, and you can tell that because we haven't covered it yet. And we're covering all of the Paul's letters tonight, or the rest of them. Um, th th there's numerous reasons. It simply doesn't fit Paul for a number of reasons. Um, and we'll talk about some of those next week when we talk about the general letters in Hebrews particularly. Uh, one of those is that Paul typically identifies himself. That was something that was very routine for him. And, uh, of course, in Hebrews, there's no author identified at all. Another is that while both are well um, phrased, both are, are uh, excellent, well, good Greek, excellent Greek, if you can call kine Greek excellent, because it wasn't academic. Um, but, but they're still different, substantially different in the way they're arranged. So it's, it can't be something like Peter uh, and having Sylvanus put it together because Paul didn't need the phrasing to be changed or put into proper order because Paul was a scholar himself. So you can pay your money and take a choice. Personally, I don't include Hebrews in Paul's letters, and that's why we won't get to Hebrews until next week. But stay tuned because we will get to it next week. All right. So the author, of course, is Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus. Uh, we've already talked about him a great deal through Acts and through the other sections of his letters. The dating of this, as with everything else, is uncertain because, number one, we've gone through two, two or three major calendar changes. And whenever you do that, you know, the dates are going to shift. But number two, because there are no uh, explicit points in the letter. For example, Paul doesn't say, uh, and Nero's about to do me in. Now, if he said that, then we can nail it very close because absolutely it's during the Neronian persecution. Uh, and we know with a window of three or four years when that was. Um, so since we don't have those things, we're going to estimate it. But the reason we're going to, or the way we're going to estimate it is still having to do with the Neronian persecution. We know that Paul lost his life in that persecution. And it is typically dated in 66-ish AD, or, or Paul's execution, about 66 AD. So again, if somebody says 64, 65, 67, don't worry about it. Because when you're going back 2,000 years, we simply can't be that picky or that accurate. Um, someone says it was 64 AD, I consider them to be in full agreement with what I'm saying. The margin of error is that big for, for this. Um, so generally, people or are, are, are scholars see the first two letters, meaning the first one to Timothy and the one to Titus, as being written about the same time, roughly 65. Possibly even sent at the same time from wherever he was. Uh, we don't know for sure where he was. There is speculation. But when he sends these letters, um, they're, they're very, very similar. We're going to see some overlapping. And they're at a similar time in his life, clearly. 
But then the second letter to Timothy appears to be a goodbye letter. It's just got that tone of this is this is about to be it, kind of like Second Peter, and what we looked at last Sunday. So, because of that, they usually will start with that letter at sixty-six, right before when Paul was supposed to have been executed, and then backdate about a year for the other two. That's how we get those dates. So we really have no other sound way of dating, except that clearly these were written fairly late in Paul's ministry. So we know they weren't written, for example, in 50, because they were written significantly later into his ministry than that. Is that making sense? All right. So the background. Uh, well, let's start with the purpose. In general, these letters were written to encourage and guide Timothy in Ephesus, Titus in Greek, as they were guiding relatively young churches and assuming Paul's mantle of leadership. So they are not Paul. They are not one of the main apostles. Everybody knows that. Certainly Timothy knows that. As you read the text, you hear Paul trying to encourage him and not let people put him down because of his relative youth and inexperience. And relative to whom? No. To Paul. So Paul's the one they've been listening to. And now Paul sends Timothy and Titus. And so all of a sudden these churches are going like, seriously, who are you? I don't know that they were doing that, frankly, too much. But Paul makes sure Timothy understands, don't let anybody do that. You have a commission. You have a reason for being there. Um, and in writing these letters, he establishes that they are actually representing him in his apostolic authority. So that was pretty huge. Um, Second Timothy appears to be Paul's farewell, his, his goodbye to Timothy. He's got a much more personal tone, although even with that, there's still a lot that we can learn from. All right. In terms of background, we've talked about this a lot, but let's just review. Paul mentioned both Timothy and Titus, among others, in his church planning and established work, uh, excuse me, mentored uh, and establishing work. So he has now been, depending on how you date the beginning of his ministry, he has now been somewhere between 15 and 30 years doing this. I would tend to go towards the 25, 30 range personally, but again, we don't have dates. We have, and then he did this, and then he did this. And it doesn't say, you know, and that and then equals five years or 10 years. So we know order of a lot of things, but we don't have dates. Um, one way or the other, he has spent many years traveling through the Mediterranean world. And he had generally a number of people, a number of entourage, if you will, with him. Uh, in some cases, in the very beginning, equal to him. Certainly when he and Barnabas set out there was no uh, belief that Paul was somehow over Barnabas. They were equals in doing this. But as time went on Paul is the apostle. Paul is the experienced one. So others join him and as they join him 
obviously then they're the ones who are being mentored and he's the one doing the mentoring. He often stations such people in specific places to build or reinforce the churches in those places. So in here, Timothy was sent to Ephesus, <coughs> excuse me, uh, where he received 1 Timothy. Titus was sent to Crete, where he received the letter that bears his name, Titus. Toward the end of the life of his life, Paul was apparently sent a uh, Paul apparently sent. Let's see why I put was in there. Uh, apparently sent a letter to Timothy, reinforcing his earlier guidance and encouraging him to come back to Paul. Um, now he may still have been in Ephesus. He may have been somewhere else. Um, it doesn't say. That's not the point of it. The first letter, the point very much, is where he was. But since we don't know, it's typically classed as one of the pastorals because people just assume it was just a second letter. Yes, a lot of personal stuff, but also giving him uh, guidance in how to serve the church in Ephesus. And it does absolutely give such guidance, whether it's Ephesus or somewhere else. So in First and Second Timothy, the, the content is basically uh, the conduct of leadership. And in Second Timothy... Um, it was it was goodbye, but it was goodbye along the lines of Second Peter and what we're doing on Sunday morning. Goodbye, but remember these things. Goodbye, and make sure you do this. So, you know, think of if, if you had the opportunity to say goodbye to somebody that you have coached in something, and that's important to both of you. As you say goodbye, you tend to reinforce those things that are really important to you. And that certainly appears to be what's happening in 2 Timothy. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Any questions so far? So we're kind of cruising. All right? Everybody's good? No. I was just curious, and you probably can't tell me, but who's with Paul? Do you know who was with Paul? When he was uh, executed, no. So there's traditions, okay. But there's there we have no, certainly no scripture that tells us, and really no reliable history either. So, um, has anybody here ever studied history in terms of um, critiquing history, critiquing historical works? Okay. So. Any historian is first and foremost a human. Would you agree? agree? Now, with scripture, we believe that the humanity is both used, guided uh, by the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit sees to it that what is produced is what the Holy Spirit wants to be produced and wants to see preserved. That's basically the doctrine of inspiration of scripture. Other than that, we don't believe that happens. So I've written brief histories of different things. And I don't believe anybody ever said uh, I was inspired in, in the writing of those. In fact, I'm quite confident no one said that. In fact, in some cases, they've said, well, you know, I read what you wrote about such and such. And I understand you were there, but you were biased. Now, was that true? 
Really no, absolutely. <laughs> it's not possible for a human short of divine inspiration to not be biased. Because we're human. Bias is just what we do. So, when I say we've got scripture, now I've got the Holy Spirit's work on something. And that obviously carries a lot of weight. If I say we've got good history, established history, then that means somebody has looked at the author, looked at the writing of it, compared it to other things, and concluded that whatever bias is there has not done irreparable damage to the historic report. And therefore, we can generally rely on this historic report. Now, if you want to have fun with that somehow, go back. You need to go back far enough that there's no immediate witnesses that can correct. So we're almost there, for example, with World War II. But the thing is, there are people who were there in various situations. So we've got this book that says things happen this way, and this book that says they happen this way. But we've got these three guys who survived who were there. And they all say, no, that guy's all wet. It was this. Okay, it's possible that they're biased too. But the weight of evidence is going to be, all right, then we'll rely on this one. And by the way, if that actually is done, someone's going to document that they said that so that after they're gone, the weight of their testimony stays with that work. And now carrying forward, that historical account is going to be given more credence than this one. Um, a witness writing down what he or she saw is going to be given more credence than somebody who gathered stories about it from other people. A person who writes five years after is going to be given more credence than a person who writes a hundred years after. Okay. So these are all things that we do in assessing the historicity of various accounts. Go ahead. Wasn't there a historian at the time of Jesus who wrote uh, a lot of history in regards to not only Jesus, but all that was going on at that time? There were actually numerous historians. There were Greek, Jewish, and Roman historians writing for different purposes, and their biases were quite well established. Uh, none of them really wrote about Jesus, per se. So the mention of Jesus is incidental to what they were writing about. One of the most famous is a guy named Josephus. How many of you have heard of Josephus? Now Josephus was Jewish, um, and yet, did you hear his name? Josephus. Not Joseph, or Yosef. Josephus, what does that tell you? Latinized. Josephus was a general in, um, yeah, it was an army, a Jewish army, a Jewish rebellion army, um, who came to believe that uh, his cause was hopeless. So he turned and defected to the Romans. And then he wrote uh, a history. And the, the purpose of his history primarily was to make himself look better because his people hated him. 
the people that he abandoned were those slaughtered um, at Masada. He, I mean, you say Josephus to the average Jew, conservative Jew today, who knows their history, and he's going to want to spit. Um, it's, it's worse than Benedict Arnold would be to an American. Um, so, okay, you've got to be careful because Josephus has got a particular purpose in writing. Um, and then there was, primarily, there's others who were Roman historians. And they wrote, again, for various reasons, almost always in support of or in critique of a specific Roman noble, Roman ruler, um, generally not while they were in power, because that could get you killed really easily, but perhaps after an emperor was dead, um, if they were supporters, then to glorify them, and if not, then to show you know, all the mistakes that they actually made. So again, what was happening in Palestine becomes peripheral to what was happening. Um, other than the gospel writers, I know of no other actual historians that were concerned with what was going on, the events in Palestine at the time of Jesus. And that's not that unusual today there are major, major things happening all over the world. But there are innumerable places that are roughly the same size as Israel was then, with some pretty important things going on that 100 years from now we're going to figure out, wow, that was happening at that time. But nobody's writing it now. Nobody's seeing it that way now because they're seeing it as current events, not thinking, well, I, I ought to write this down so... Later, you know, when we're all dead and gone, people will know what happened. Does that make sense? Okay. A little excursus, but hey, Good. I gave it to you for free. You said that like a five-year uh, report or whatever would be more um, accurate than a hundred years. No, I said it would have more credibility. Oh, more credibility. It wouldn't factor in that in that hundred years all new facts have showed up and made it... I mean, I guess we live in an age where you can get information about everything. Um, so well, we do, and unfortunately, a large percentage of it is false. So, you know, we, we have this two-edged sword. We could get on and Google anything. But how many of you actually look at every author of every one of those documents and research who that person was, when they wrote, what their biases are? So we don't do that. And I mean, I could get on right now and write any number of documents about things I literally have no knowledge of and post them somewhere. All I need is a website. I've got several. So it's easy. And then I can pay money to a search engine like Google and uh, certain people who do this and make sure that that pops up on your searches. And all of a sudden, you get what's called the woozle effect, where um, somebody saw mine and then re references it. Somebody else does ref uh, research, sees both of them, and says, well, there's two different that say this, and then references it, says the same thing. And the next thing you know, you've got 20 people saying, what I made up. <laughs> now, we can document this, by the way, in formal research going on in universities in US today. 
The Woosel effect is an actual term um, that if you study research methodology, methodology, you'll hear that word. If we can do that with something that's being done as it's happening, think what we could do with something that is 100 years old that nobody can correct us on because nobody was there that's still alive. Whereas that person five years out, Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, when, he, when he calls attention to the hundreds of, of uh, witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, many of whom are still alive. Why does he say that? You can go check it out. You go talk to these people. There's hundreds of witnesses still able to tell you, not hundreds of witnesses who said that they saw it, and then hundreds of years later, we quote them. So the proximity for him was a big deal. Now that said, a liar can lie lie five years later just as easily as 100 years later. And so be careful. Yes. John says, test all spirits. Uh, Test the flesh, too. The, The idea of that, I think, applies across the board. Okay. Let's look at some specific passages. In 1 Timothy, um, Paul refers to the purpose of Christ's coming in chapter 1, verse 15. Somebody have that? Or would you get it? It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Okay. So in this, Paul repeats what we've read in other places. Why did Jesus come? Now this is pretty important because Timothy is reestablishing, if you will, the churches, the church in Ephesus. And a church should be focused on what? This is not a hard question, folks. The gospel. The gospel. And the gospel is that. Jesus came. By the way, Christ Jesus. That is not simply a more formal term. Christ means what? The anointed, the chosen. What's the Hebrew word? You get extra points if you come up with it. Messiah. See, you guys get extra points. Congratulations. The Messiah came, see, to do this. Um, So by calling him Christ, which is a title, not a name, Paul emphasizes the very uh, place in history that God had already prepared for Jesus to do this. So he's emphasizing the gospel. All right. Um, Men and women in leadership. This is an interesting passage. So um, chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Okay, I'm sorry, um, keep going through 15. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modest, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. 
Now, that is a passage that is very often quoted, very, very often argued about, for numerous reasons. Any questions? Shall we just go on? Well, I'm teaching by going on, too. It's just a different strategy. So what do you think of what was just read? How many of you like what you just heard? It's okay to not like the Bible, by the way. You don't get to say you're right, but, you know. Well, I do. You like it? You get to say you're right? <laughs> no, no, no. I, was, I, I, I don't mind liking it. Okay. Oh. But probably for the, uh, the very wrong reason. So, yeah. <laughs> so what causes p- problems for people today in what we just read? Women to be submissive and in the background and... Oh, so, so the part about men praying wasn't a problem for you guys. You're okay with men praying. Yeah. Right? Well, hopefully they're praying. Well, I'm just saying. It's part of it. But then you get that thing that says, I want women to adorn themselves, to be modest, discreet, uh, no braided hair, by the way, gold or pearls or costly garments, but instead, by means of, of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness is the same word that we emphasized Sunday morning from Peter. Okay, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Okay, now that, that sentence, by the way, taken out of context from what we read last week should cause no one any heartburn. Why would it cause anybody heartburn? Women, you're to be entirely submissive. So what? Is that a problem? If you're submitting to God, no. But if you're... Picky, picky, picky. <laughs> <laughs> well, but are these Paul, to be submissive? These are Paul's words, but he's led by the Spirit. So. Yeah. So there's that Holy Spirit yeah. inspiration thing. Yeah. But last week, we read Ephesians 5.21, which said what? Everybody submits to everybody. So to single someone out and say, so you should submit, is not an issue. There's no problem with that. It's the context where he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, here's some questions for you. Question number one. Is Paul saying that about all women in all situations? Is Paul saying that about women in Ephesus for some reason? Is Paul saying that about women in a worship context as the church meets together in Ephesus? Which one? Based on what, other than you prefer it? Well, I'm getting a, and maybe I heard it before too, that the women were kind of obnoxious in that church, and Paul was addressing certain okay. things so that was going on. A tradition that has come up. I don't, I don't really know of any real close to that, but more modern, trying to explain it is that women were experiencing something new, and that was a freedom. Remember, 
you've got Jews, Greeks, and Romans, three primary cultural groups, okay? All of them are patriarchal. The Jews, in most ways, were actually less uh, oppressive than the Greeks and the Romans. But all of them patriarchal. All of them severely limited the rights and freedoms of women, particularly in groups. And then Paul says something like, now in Christ, there is no female or male. You're all the same. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of freedom. And there's this knee-jerk response because women who have never had that freedom and frankly never been coached in how to use it, men would have been brought up with that. What to say, what not to say, because you get in a lot of trouble in city gatherings, for example, saying the wrong thing. Whereas men, women didn't have to worry about it because they weren't allowed to say anything. So that is a theory. I don't know of any documentation of that actually happening. But then, unfortunately, there probably wouldn't be because nobody was particularly concerned about documenting it at the time, one way or the other. It wasn't something anybody could say, you know, in the 21st century, some people are going to be really upset about this, so we really ought to give some background to it. This didn't happen. So that's possible, and it is a possible understanding of why Paul seems to be so restrictive of women. Now, by the way, a hundred years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Do you understand that? A hundred years ago, here, they would have said, well, of course, because they pretty much did the same thing. So the, the reaction that we see and we hear today to this, we've got to understand, in large part, is our culture. And we have a tendency to then want to impose our culture and values on people who lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. That part's a bad idea, but if this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, then it becomes a lot more important than just this is the way they were back then. So here's another question. Is Paul meaning what he said there? For all women, in all situations, for all time, in the church. Clearly he's speaking within the context of our faith. I'm talking about pagan women. Agreed? So is he meaning that, which would mean uh, it's, it's what we would call it universal? Or is Paul, for whatever reason, whether we know about it in something like you just said or not, is Paul suggesting that this is something important in that scenario, in that time, in that place? but not necessarily every other time, every other place. What's your answer? How would we know other than you're going to explain it to us? <laughs> well, actually, your first part is the most important part. Okay, how would Before you start knee-jerking, you need to ask yourself, well, on what basis can I make that conclusion? So what would tell you one or the other? 
intervention of several women doing good works in the Bible? Well, doing good works isn't a problem because he says they should do good works. So the question is, in what context are they doing good works? Are they doing it in all meekness and submission and all of that? Or are they doing it in a different form, so to speak? So yeah, the doing good works is no argument. But you're on the right track. If it's universal, it's not going to be in just one place, is it? Unless it's the only place we have teaching about this. Do we have teaching in other scripture about gender roles? Direct or indirect? Do we have this? Some of you are going, yes, very confident. And some of you are going, he's setting us up again. <laughs> So we, we know at least in Ephesians, which clearly was universal, he even universalized it in terms of not just men and women or husbands and wives. By the way, men and women, the word man and the word woman, are the same word in Greek and Hebrew for husband and wife. So it, it would be, it sounds a little almost barbaric, but Donna's my woman, you know? And that's, I mean, that's how it would be said. She is my woman. I do possess her, just as I am her man. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 11, that's a mutual possession. We actually have rights over one another by virtue of the marriage commitment. So, uh, you know, us, we use a different word. And a lot of the confounding, even in terms of what is marriage, that our culture deals with today would not be there if we simply went back to the words they used then. But in Ephesus, um, and by the way, this is Ephesus. So in Ephesians, some years earlier, Paul tells them they're to submit to each other. So whatever this means, unless he's contradicting himself, whatever this means does not mean that there is now a higher hierarchy established wherein women submit to men, period. Because he's already said that's not how it is. Does that make sense? Alright, what else? Can anybody think of something else in scripture? Like the examples you're thinking of, maybe. I'm, I'm thinking of Priscilla. Thank you. Because you see, Priscilla didn't just do good works. Priscilla was a teacher, a leader. And by the way, in scripture, it's normally Priscilla and Aquila, not Aquila and Priscilla. And in the Greek language, that was important. It would have been very unusual to list the wife and then the husband. Did Lydia also teach? Lydia, who hosted a church in her home, who ran a business and frankly provided the stability of the early Philippian church by that business, and appears to be, at least, a leader in that church. So, and there's others that we can say like this. Um, there's one, and the problem is that the word could be either feminine or masculine, the name. It's one of those weird names that, most names have endings that are clearly feminine or masculine. So by the ending of it, you can tell if this is a man or a woman. And Junius, 
uh, is referred to by Paul in one of his letters as an apostle. And Junius would normally be a female name. Uh, but there are those who try to, to make a case that no, in this case, it was just a strange name that was uh, actually a man. But here's the thing. This has been argued for 2,000 years and will continue to be. No one argues about what Paul said and what he meant. Would you agree? There's nothing figurative about it. There's nothing obscure about it. It's very clear. The question is the application of it. Is that as true today in the city of Orange as it was 2,000 years ago in Ephesus? And would you agree that's a pretty important question? Who makes that decision? In this church, who makes that decision? The elders. The elders. What's the elders' conclusion here? It's been publicized three times since I've been here. Well, they would never allow me to become an elder. Um, not yet. So, once again, what is the elders' conclusion? And it's a trick question. I'm warning you, it's a trick question. I'm okay with it. Actually, I thought that it was announced that your position was the only one that was not available to women. Yes. The last time that we. But that's not addressing the question. What was the elders' conclusion? That they need to continue studying. Yeah. yeah. We don't know. Okay. They disagree. And until they come to a consensus, they're not going to try to say the, the church must uh, practice our our consensus here because there's a belief that the Holy Spirit leads them in this so three different times in the 16 years I've been here the elders have spent 6 to 12 months studying this this is not just sit around and well I always believed and you know a 20 minute conversation this is restudying every passage in the Bible they can think of that relates to it and every time they've come back pretty much split down the middle and therefore they come with some of these things and say, well, then how are we going to live in the meantime? It's not over. It's not done. We're going to continue to come back and look at the word and ask these questions. But in the meantime, we have people who disagree. In leadership, we know that that reflects the congregation as well. So we have many people, by the way, not along gender lines, we have, I've been told by many women that if a female was doing what I did, what I do, they would leave the church. So this isn't a male-female opinion. It has to do with a lot of other things. And the bottom line is it has to do with what do we believe God is telling us and how do we act faithfully to that. And sometimes you say, I don't know yet, rather than knee-jerking and trying to lay down a policy that a few years from now you find yourself having to walk back because you realize it's not the right one. I personally think that was an extraordinarily brave and honorable thing that they did in saying, yeah, we've, we've spent, in the, in the last case it was literally about six months, um, but pretty much everybody in the room had been through at least one other of those studies, and we're still not there. So we're going to set it aside for now 
and we're going to compromise by living this way. And so we have policies today, but you will not find the elders saying um, that's the, the biblical policy and therefore we're just carrying it out. They will tell you exactly what I just said. We've studied it. We have not been able to come to a conclusion about the universality. See, it's pretty important we understand that because it doesn't mean that the Bible's hard to understand. It is seriously clear. The only question is, what do we do with it? Is that today or was that just then? So if you want to discuss that more, I'd be happy to, but let's do it after. All right? Can you see, by the way, why I listed that? Can anybody see that? Um, I'm going to be doing a brief class in between the holidays, Jan or, uh, Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. Um, brief meaning probably three weeks. And uh, the focus of the class will be on principles of understanding Scripture. You just got one big lesson out of it. I mean, seriously, this is, you let the whole interpret apart. And it's exactly what you just said. There's other places in Scripture we know it says this and this. So we can't assume the, we can't have the Holy Spirit contradicting himself. We simply don't believe he does that. Therefore, whatever this means has to be understood in the context of those other things. Does that make sense? So we'll be looking at other things like that, but that's one of the primary principles for understanding Scripture. All right, so back to this. Uh, qualifications for leadership. Um, in uh, 1 Timothy, third chapter, uh, first 13 verses. I'm not going to read through all of those. We can read through some in Titus, which is almost, not exactly, but almost an identical list. Um, and then we could, I suppose, debate why there's two different lists um, if you wanted to. Uh, the unity of the body is focused on in the fourth chapter of uh, the 16 verses in the fourth chapter of the letter. Uh, the love of money. Let's go to that one. It's one of those wonderful quotes that people misquote all the time. So, 1 Timothy ver, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings according godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Is that right? No, that is chapter 6. That is 6. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. Okay. And uh, the teachings that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has a healthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and con constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Okay, stop for a second. So, yeah, the, the problem we had is that it says uh, through 10. So, it's the whole section. We're, we're going to read the rest of it. But did you hear what he just said? These people imagine that godliness is a source of gain. A means of gain. Have you ever heard of anybody teaching something like that? <laughs> yeah, that's what the health and wealth, prosperity, uh, there's all sorts of terms used for it. Um, it is very, very popular in the United States. 
um, and, and in fact in the world. The most listened to preacher in the entire world, solidly in this camp. And there's only one problem with it. The scripture says it's not true. All right, go ahead and finish reading but through God 10, is, if you would. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what did he just say about the love of money? The root of all evil. No, he did not say that. <clears throat> Careful. The root of all kinds of evil. No, he did not say that. Read it again. For the love of money is a root oh, of all kinds of evil. Yeah. Would you agree that's a little different? Yes. So, I mean, it, it, certainly the application of it is going to end up being pretty close. But there's a big difference between saying it is one of the roots of all kinds of evil and saying it is the root of all evil. And so uh, last week we talked about uh, antinomianism and asceticism. And I don't know that I used that, that term, but uh, people who would uh, indulge in everything they wanted because after all the spirit and the flesh aren't connected so let, let the flesh have whatever it wants, doesn't matter. And the people who take the opposite say spirit and flesh of course are still uh, in opposition therefore you must beat down the flesh so the, the spirit can flourish. Uh, that's what's called asceticism. Um, one of the verses that is used by those who would go the opposite direction from uh, the health and wealth gospel um, would be to glorify poverty. And that is very much in the ascetic realm. Poverty is not glorified anywhere in scripture either. Okay? So it's not about money. It's not about stuff. When it becomes about money or stuff, it becomes a problem. But see how quickly and easily we heard it and immediately made it say something a bit different. So we've got to be pretty careful because if we can do that on something like that and we heard literally five to ten seconds before, think what happens when we're in a discussion and we read something last year and it comes to mind. But what exactly did we read? Because if we can change things in ten seconds... Think what we can change in a year in our memory. We've got to be very, very careful. This is why when you're in a discussion and someone says, but the Bible says, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. And you, what do you say? Yeah. <laughs> you say, show me. Show, show me. me the money. Oh, show, show me. me. <laughs> show me. Hand them a Bible. Give them a giant concordance. Help them out. Because hopefully what they're going to do is they're going to look it up and they're going to read that and they're going to see, no, it doesn't say the root of all evil. A root of all evil. And there's a lot of passages, by the way, that we misquote. In some cases, grossly, 
because we're so used to hearing other people say it a certain way that we just read what we're used to hearing into our memory and back into scripture. So it's good for us when we say, I remember the Bible said something like that. Say that to yourself. Show me. Look it up. Find it. And see what it says. And see how often it doesn't say exactly what we remember. I've been studying the word a long time at a reasonably deep level. And I find this happens to me roughly two to three times a month. At least. At least. And the reason I know is because I look it up. Because if I don't look it up, I'm going to say it says this, and one of you, smart Alex, is going to look it up and say, uh, Randy, you messed that up. This is what it really says. And nailed me with it. And I'm not going to give you the pleasure. That's a good thing for us to hold each other accountable to, though. Okay. Um, then Paul's charge to Timothy in chapter 6, the 11th verse, which is the next verse, and, and this gives you, again, this is, this is why he writes the letter. So, somebody want to read from verse 11 to 16. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, and that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Okay. And by the way, amen means what? Let it be so. It's not done. He's got, I mean, it's verse 17. Right? So the letter's not done yet. What do you hear versus what you might have expected to hear the way I set it up? What do you hear when, when you hear those verses? Fight the good fight. Okay. Stay, remain faithful. Right. And he's saying that to whom? To Timothy. To Timothy. So it's very personal, would you agree? Now he's writing this letter to Timothy as a man who is to be setting things in order in the whole church. But when he gives this charge to him, it becomes very personal to Timothy. You make sure your faith is where it's supposed to be. Hence, Paul uses that terminology, fight the fight of faith. He sees faith as like a battle against lack of faith. And it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing to me that he doesn't say Make sure you're doing all these things with the church. Make sure you now he's done some of that already. But at this point, wrapping up the letter, he says, you make sure that your faith is where it's supposed to be. 
and then directs him back to what that is in very basic terms. Okay. Let's go to Titus because Titus is very similar. Um, qualifications for leadership in Titus in the first chapter, fifth to nine verses. Ninth, fifth to ninth. Sorry, hold on. You have a question? Uh, yes, in regards to leadership and the qualifications, there's a mention in regards to uh, not only elders, but also deacons. Okay. But you don't hear much about Okay, let's read it first, and then we'll come back to that. Okay, go ahead. Whoever is going to read it. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both, both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Okay. Who is he talking about? What, what leaders? Okay. Um, he also uses the word overseers, by the way. Did you catch that? And again, they're, they're references to the same group of people. He does not talk about deacons here. Now, we skipped that particular passage for sake of time in 1 Timothy. So if you go to 1 Timothy, there is a parallel passage in chapter 2, the 8th to 15th. No, that's chapter 3, the first 13 verses. And you will hear something very similar to this. And then deacons likewise. Now, deacons, by the way, is not a translation. So some translations will say servants, likewise. But there's a problem with that, because everyone's supposed to be a servant, right? And here he's laying out pretty high standards or qualifications for somebody to be a servant. So what's that about? Well, the, the, the word deacon became used for a servant which was trusted or who was trusted with specific authority, specific resources. So everybody serves in general, but these people served as managers, if you will. And that's actually not a bad word. Um, and so the word deacon became known or became used as an office rather than just servant. Just as elder became used for an office rather than simply describing somebody who's older than somebody else. So it was absolutely a, a different leadership office, the, the deacons underneath the elders. Now, you, you asked the question, so why is it today that in most churches, I, I would say most, I don't know if you said most, so maybe that's me. Um, in most churches, including this one, we have not identified deacons and appointed people with that title. Anybody got thoughts? 
Anybody know why? Because. Because? That's what I was going to say. You asked the question as I was thinking in one. And you asked why. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's not an office. It's a service. Well, it, it in the New Testament, it was both. Wasn't Stephen one of them? They weren't actually called deacons, but most would agree they were the first who actually filled that role. And I would agree with it, too. Uh, Stephen, Philip, there were seven of them. Um, if you remember, it was in the early church in Jerusalem, and there was arguments about the Hellenistic widows. Hellenistic is, means Greek. So the widows from the Greek areas. Remember, we talked about this um, with Acts in the beginning of the church, that there were these people who made the pilgrimage, and they were there for Passover and then for Pentecost. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the assumption is then they go home. They go to their families. Their families support them. They go back to the work they were doing and are supported that way. One way or the other, they go away and are taken care of back where they came from. But they didn't because they believed Jesus was going to come back any minute. Why in the world would I be traversing the desert in Turkey or Asia Minor, excuse me, um, when Jesus comes back when I can be sitting here in Jerusalem? So they stayed. And their money ran out. Now how are they going to survive? People would, would come and give money to the apostles and just say, here. We have an example of a guy named Barnabas who was a Levite. He actually owned land, um, which interesting for a Levite, but sold the land, brought the money in, gave it to the apostles, said, here, do what you need with it, because they saw the need. But the apostles said, you know, we've got better things to do than this. We're, we're not, to use our modern parlance, we're not social workers. Our ministry is the word and prayer. That's what we are called to do. And we're not going to neglect that in order to do this. So, you, and you was referring to thousands of people, the Jerusalem church. You select seven men from yourselves, and they, they gave some spiritual qualifications, and bring them to us. They did so. They brought those men. The apostles affirmed the decision and then said, now, here's the money. It's your problem. I mean, literally, just, you know, not, here's all the checks and balances and how we're going to keep tabs on it. It was, no, no, no. <laughs> we're not going to mess with this. Here's the money. It's your problem. Take care of them. And most believe that that's the first deacons, even though that the term deacon wasn't applied at that time. And again, I would agree with that. So a deacon is somebody who is singled out for spiritual qualifications and the ability to manage a specific task and then takes that task and does that on behalf of the elders with the elders' authority because the apostles were functioning as the elders in the Jerusalem church. And over the first three decades, they basically handed the eldership over to non-apostolic leaders and went on their way and did more apostolic stuff and less stuff right there in Jerusalem. So why do we not do that? Or do we do that? I was, 
I was just gonna say, I think we have people that serve in the function and just would just for I don't know the reason that we wouldn't give the title other than what's because we do qualify people. We don't just let any and everybody serve in roles around here. Yes. I know that that's Yes. <coughs> Can you give me an example of some of those people? I would um, think that <coughs> people like um, the worship team. The, Maybe. Those, the leaders of the worship team, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. The, um, um, children's ministry workers. No. But, based on what I just said. Callie. Callie, for sure. Mm -hmm. Perhaps she has three coordinators that work under her. Okay, so Perhaps I, those three. See, it was a higher level of entrusting. Yeah. We're not just talking staff, though. Oh, no, no. Yeah. But we are talking staff because, remember, staff developed when the volunteers simply didn't have enough time. Mm -hmm. And the elders said, well, listen, why don't we just support you so you can do what? Because we need this done. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to be a tent maker anymore. You can just do this. So it, it never started out with some professional class. It started out with the, the very same people saying, well, okay, I'd be willing to do that, oh. but I gotta feed my family. Small group leaders? Small group leaders, very possibly. Uh, certainly a coordinator of the small groups. And who would teach class? So, so it, it comes down to the point of at what level of leadership do you consider that to kick in? And I think that's something that the local elders have to decide. In this church, we actually have provision for that in the bylaws. And I can tell you exactly why, historically, we don't do it. Now, or why we didn't start doing it. Why we don't do it is, is probably just because it kept not being done. <laughs> it became the new pattern. When I came here, there were elections held once a year. And there were like 50 people elected to various offices, all of which supposedly met the standards of deacon although some were called deacon without a job. They didn't have a task delegated. They were just elected to be called that. And then the staff went around frantically trying to find something for them to do. Um, one of the criteria for me coming was that the bylaws be scrapped and we rewrite, well, not rewrite. We didn't rewrite them. We write others from scratch. And we did that. And we scrapped all of that because it's nonsense, it's not biblical. We did put in the provision that the elders could appoint people in the same way as Acts uh, 6 and 7 and the seven deacons in Acts. Um, they had to have the same qualifications as 1 Timothy um, and those people then could serve as deacons. But there was such a, an antipathy at the time because of what had been going on with all of those people being elected. I mean, there were, there were literally, when I came here, of the core, uh, probably two-thirds held office, elected office of some kind. I came August 1st, the elections happened in the fall, and I believe the first week of September was the deadline for the slate. And my first month was filled with people coming to me frantic because they couldn't come up with enough names to put on the ballot. 
so that we could elect all those offices. It was just crazy. And so when we changed the bylaws, there was this collective sigh of relief and everybody just said, forget that. So I would tell you today that I believe, for example, every staff member is a deacon, with the exception of myself, because I'm considered by bylaws to be an elder. Um, I believe that all of the missions team are deacons because they are still charged with the distribution of a significant amount of money. They're given that responsibility and the elders have basically said, we don't have the time to do the research you need to be doing. So you go do it. And sure, they still work under the elders' authority, but the elders don't try to micromanage them. So, you know, they haven't gone through a formal process to be named deacon or deaconess. And deaconess, by the way, is a term found in the scripture. Um, very simply, a female deacon or female servant. So the ending of the word is feminine instead of masculine. The word is the same word. And it simply means servant. So, I don't know if that satisfies, but I think historically in this church, it's accurate. Now, for other churches, there's... Uh, there's weird things and weird governments in churches all over the place. And some of them I know how they got there and some of them I don't. So I suppose it depends on which tradition you're looking at. But um, for us, that's, I guarantee you that's why it is because I've been present for those discussions over the last 16 years. But it is scripture. Pardon? But it is scripture. Oh, absolutely. Third chapter of First Timothy. Absolutely. And again, with specific spiritual qualifications. All right, little bit of time left. Um, let's go to four, six, and eight. Oh, I'm sorry. I went to a different book. Um, let's go to Second um, Timothy, four, six, and eight. If somebody gets it, go ahead and read it out if you would. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Okay. So now you get that passage that we're talking about that pretty clearly shows you where what's going on in Paul's mind. So, what? This one says, for all who have loved his appearing, and hers have longed for it. That's a little, that's different. Yeah, what, what uh, translation were you reading? The NIV. Yeah. It just seems so different there. Well, if you remember the very first class, we talked about yeah. uh, staying to the meaning of the words themselves or to what is perceived to be the meaning in general. Um, so loved the appearing is a phrase that doesn't click in American, but long or desired for the appearing does. So NIV used it. The word is uh, a verb derivative of agape, so it is definitely loved. 
Didn't mean that to be an example of translation differences, but there you go. <clears throat> so you hear the tone. You hear why we say this is, this is a goodbye letter in many ways. Um, a few other things just for fun. Uh, 2.15, 2 Timothy. What? Is the workman approved? It's 2.15. <laughs> You're trying to cheat. Be diligent to pre present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handing accurately the word of truth. Okay. Oh. Well, and, then, and then you said some strange Native American <laughs> word. What does that mean? A workman approved, not ashamed. Uh, almost. Almost. How many of you are familiar with eternal life? Okay. So that shows the backgrounds that you come from. Yeah. Uh, this church used to have an Awana program. It's a children's and youth uh, teaching program. Uh, the, the youth never is as popular as the children. It's almost paramilitary. Um, the, there's no coordinator. There's a commander. And some people take that pretty seriously. When I went to Beaverton, uh, I was over all children's ministry administratively, as well as a number of other things. And we had the largest Awana club in the Northwest. Uh, well, in Oregon, anyway. And um, that's why I, I know the exact meaning. Because if you changed one word, someone jumped down your throat like you can't believe. Um, typically, the commander. Um, and we had to really work hard to get that person to understand that perhaps that didn't quite mesh with Jesus' teaching on being the servant of all, because uh, he really liked that word. Um, approved workmen are not ashamed. A-W-A-N-A. -A. By the way, never Awanas. Purists will bite you for that. So you don't want an Awana bite, don't do it. Um, it's a program very, very structured. It gives lots of awards. Um, there's just uh, there's a lot of memorization and a lot of awards for it. There's good, there's bad to it, but um, if you've been around the program, it's amazing how many people have been around the program and don't know where it comes from. And it comes from 2 Timothy 2.15. Just an interesting point, by the way. Be diligent, okay? Uh, and that was New American Standard, right? Uh, NIV, I believe, says study. It's the, the Greek word is spudazo. It means to exert a lot of effort. And you're going to hear that word uh, three or four times in the passage we cover in the next two weeks in Second Peter. So it was one of Peter's favorite words in writing that letter. Um, okay, let's end with 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Let's finish the sentence. All scripture, is, is, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay. So that was 17. So you've heard that 16 probably a lot of times. <clears throat> Excuse me. Unfortunately, frequently we, we only read half the sentence. And this is the unfortunate thing about verses because we, we split sentences and don't read the entire thing. And it is important. It was important enough for the Holy Spirit to put in why that should be there. So 
Perhaps we should know that, right? Okay, um, we're, we're done for today. If you've got any questions, let me know. Be happy to respond to them. Otherwise, hope to see you tomorrow night. We will, we will give like way too much sugar to your kids. What can I tell you? Um, and next week we will do the general letters.